The following pre-recorded program is brought to you by Wrestling with the Inner Man. Welcome to Wrestling with the Inner Man, because the first fight we face each and every day is a fight with our flesh. Do we listen to our selfish, sinful nature or to divine nature guided by the Holy Spirit? Your host, David Savage, is a product of the West Texas desert and energy industry who recently received the biggest promotion of his life, reporting directly to the top boss, God. We hope you're ready to rumble because wrestling with the inner man begins now. Good evening, WWM listeners. It's November 6th, and that means we vote on Tuesday. Please remember to get out and vote. So looking for a few good men and women. We're doing that in our elections as well. (laughs) It is a recognized slogan for the U.S. Marine Corps recruiting for decades now. It's also the title of Chapter 10 in my book, The Savage Path, A Memoir of Modern Masculinity. And by the way, if listening to a few of these chapters and the study guide discussions has piqued your interest in my book, you can learn more about it by visiting my website at www.thesavagepath.com. The price of both the paperback and Kindle version are reduced while we promote the book through this series. And for just $4.99, you can download the Kindle version, less than a fancy coffee at Starbucks. My guest today is a man who was taught mountaineering at Exum Mountain Guides out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. He has made his living for decades in the wildernesses of the world, leading expeditions and working for a ski patrol in the winter months. We met at a father and son program called Christ in the Tetons back in 2006, and since then, he has been the executive director of Adventures for Life and the Better Man program. Both are great programs to help men become better fathers, husbands, and spiritual leaders of their families. In many ways, he and these programs have been my inspiration to write my book and create this radio show and podcast. So, Russell Rainey, welcome to Wrestling with the Inner Man. Thanks, David. It's good to be here with you. It's been, uh, like you said, back in 2006, it's been a long journey for both of us and different directions, but very parallel in a lot of ways. So this just feels good being here with you. All right. It's great to have you on. So, Russell, help our listeners get to know you a little bit better by just telling them a little more about your your background, your family history. Well, the you know, kind of my professional and even recreational background has all been around the mountains and the outdoors. And I started like a lot of guys, and you, David, I got into the outdoors originally. I grew up in Arkansas uh, in the Boy Scouts and went on to become an Eagle Scout, and uh, just loved. I loved everything about my time in the Boy Scouts. It was really one of the highlights of of my, you know, my youth growing up, we had a great troop where our leaders made sure that we were out camping or backpacking or at one of the scouting events at least once a month. And um, it was just, you know, it was, it was an excellent experience. And I went on from that, I started getting, you know, into higher, higher mountains. I went to Philmont Scout Ranch in 1976, which was their bicentennial year. Mm-hmm. I've got a special bicentennial patch from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, Tell people, and I really believe this. It's a bit cliche, but it's it's true. Is I, when I went out to the Rocky Mountains for the first time, I never really came home, and my heart was always there. And and uh, so it was it was later in high school and then definitely in college when I started to go out more and get into more high adventure stuff. And and I realized after getting, you know, I was athletic enough, I could get myself into situations that I did not have the training or experience <laughs> for and uh, survive and, you know, just sheer luck, I think, on some of it. Um, 
And so I decided that, you know, hey, I really like doing this and I'd like to um, just, you know, kind of have a long time doing this rather than die on a mountain somewhere. And so uh, I got uh, hooked up with the best school. It's called, it's known as the Harvard of Wilderness Schools out of Lander, Wyoming, called the National Outdoor Leadership School. And I took a, just a student course with them to start with, which is a 30 day in the wilderness. You, you know, hit the trail and 30 days later, you come back out. It was in the Wind Rivers, um, the most remote wilderness in the lower 48. And I just loved it. And they asked me to come back the next year to take their instructor's course, which was the most intense 35 days I've ever spent in my life. Because um, you weren't, everyone that was on there was competent in their skills. You were learning how to teach those skills to, to other people, and and it just really kind of unleashed my joy as an outdoor educator, and and just I just went on and on and on all the way up till, at one point I started doing my own climbing and got noticed, even you know in climbing magazines and things, and I got the call for any mountain guide in the world. Um, from Exxon Mountain Guides based in Jackson Hole. It's the most famous guide service on the planet. The list of Exxon Guides is, is a who's who of, of mountaineering history for over 100 years now, all over the globe. Um, and they called and asked if I wanted to come uh, be, a, be a guide there or try out to be a guide. And uh, that was great. And so I did and moved our family from Arkansas. I had two little kids at the time, a one-year-old son, a three-year-old daughter and a wife. And um, we just moved everything out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming and uh, started trying to figure it out. You know, if I'd have known what I didn't know at that point, I probably never would have done something like that because uh, it was really an impossible thing to do. But, you know, we just jumped out in faith and, and uh, we just kept being blessed you know, pretty well wherever we needed to be. Yeah. As a, as a so dad, was... a young dad too. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. you know, it's funny. I, I actually went to Fillmont in 1976 as well. The first time I have that same patch. So, uh, you know, we might've crossed trails early on. Who knows? <laughs> <clears throat> well, so then in chapter 10, I tell the story of how I was asked to go backpacking with several executives who worked for one of the refinery companies uh, I called on. You know, we didn't know one another very well and, they were all older than me by 12 to uh, to 14 years. These men were senior to me in every way in the work world, and I, I wasn't going to argue with them on, on map reading skills. And so I'd like to just take a, a moment here, and I'll just read a little excerpt from the book. So as the youngster and former ranger, I was typically leading the group. We were using 1954 photo-revised USGS quad maps and quickly learned that there were many more trails on the ground than our old maps showed. On the morning of the third day, we came to a junction in the trail where there were two well-defined paths heading off in different directions to different drainages. There was only one trail shown on the map. We paused and studied the map very carefully. I was certain of the topography, drainage, contours, and other indications on the map that we should take the left or western leading trail. Adolf was equally certain that the right trail was the way to go. I wasn't going to argue with this high-ranking client. So I respected these men and their authority and defer to their decisions, even if I was in disagreement. This is how we rangers taught the senior patrol leaders at Philmont. You let them make a mistake and hike the extra miles until they figure it out on their own. Besides, I was younger and could easily hike the extra miles. We took the trail to the right and continued up through a bunch of thick willow shrubs to the top of Divide. It was a difficult hike in an elevation of over 10,000 feet now, and, and we'd all been coming from sea level along the coast. We found a lake just down from the pass we had come over and sat down beside it for a snack and the pack's off break. Adolf asked to see the map and I handed it to him. 
He studied it quietly for a very long time. I finally said that it didn't matter how long he looked at it. We were no longer hiking in territory that was on that map. <laughs> Generally, it's not a good idea to be totally off the map, <laughs> but those quad maps were at a scale that didn't cover an extremely large area. Next, there was a lot of murmuring. Jim looked at the map, and Joe was foolishly trusting the rest of us, probably regretting not choosing his bailout option earlier. We finally came to the consensus that we were, in fact, lost and probably off the maps we had brought with us. This is when the wilderness finds out if you compound your mistakes or take your medicine and hike back down to a well-known and defined point on your map. So that was just the beginning of what ended up being a rather harrowing uh, journey where we had a little bit of a, a life-saving situation <laughs> because of a, a acute mountain sickness uh, with one of the individuals. But So, Russell, you know, you have all this experience. What, what was going through your mind when you first read the chapter in the book? Well, the easiest thing was been there, done that. <laughs> and, and I'd like to say only once. I've done that so many times where you kind of get going. And especially, like you said, that youthful energy and ability to fill miles. Like, ah, hey, let's just go over there. That looks good. So it must be right, <laughs> you know, because you kind of have aspirations of where you want to go, and it may not be exactly there. You know, today it's a um, it's an unusual experience because of technology with the GPS and, you know, kind of being found. and But it creates a whole other set of problems, especially in the search and rescue world. I was working with some mountain guides. We were officially part of the um, Grand Teton National Park. Uh, mountain search and rescue team because we were on the mountains all day every day we were all over the place and we were going to get there quicker than anybody to a, a thing but once cell phones started happening um, and in the Tetons for the most part you could get cell service it's a fairly small range um, and uh, the and then of course when the GPS and then the little beacons where you could just hit an SOS button the amount of rescues have just you know gone through the roof well, what happens on every one of those rescues is your search and rescue guys, they're putting their, you know, health and safety and on the line to try to come. And, and a lot of times what you find is somebody just got lost like you guys. <laughs> and you probably can even f go back and say, yeah, if we'd have just been able to push a button and somebody come, you know, rescued us, we may have, we may have thought about it. <clears throat> you didn't have that option. So you had to self, re self rescue, but, um, it, it's just kind of interesting to, how the wilderness has lost some of that, uh, at least for people. Um, but even in that, we still get, you know, folks in the wilderness that, you know, they'll get benighted when it's called benighting, when you just basically have to spend the night where you didn't think you were going to have to spend the night. It's a grand term, but it's not, it's never a very comfortable term. Um, and some people just don't survive the night. Um, you know, because of the cold moves in or a snowstorm and the right. rescuers may not be able to get there. And so there's a false sense of security in all of that, which there was a little bit, you know, in, in that group think that was going false sense of security with, if we all kind of talk about it and nobody objects and we all go in one direction, well, we must be going the right direction. And that's just, you know, again, they're just getting, you're, you're sort of fooling yourself, um, in that. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great it's a great leveling yeah, experience, you know, in, in that uh, you know it doesn't matter your age or even but you you really need to speak your mind, you know, and, and then have those discussions in a way that's uh, productive, you know, not not really arguing, but just like okay, you know, make your case and then I'll make my case, and we had yep. we had a lot of those, and that helps you from compounding 
an already, you know, uh, significant mistake. <laughs> but Well, and you mentioned, though, in the beginning of that was you guys didn't know each other. You didn't have a relationship. You didn't know each other's personality, leadership styles, and the group dynamics, and all the stuff that goes into there. And so... You you know you don't if somebody feels really strongly you don't know well that guy feels strongly about you know everything right. or that guy never really feels strongly he's always kind of going along so if he feels strongly you know we ought to listen um, you know kind of thing and and so you don't have any of that kind of history and, and knowledge of each other so just like you're ignorant about where you are in the wilderness you're also ignorant where you are in sort of this group dynamics and and who to trust which I think is one of the keys when you start talking about finding friends is how do you decide, you know, that they're not just friends in a way that, Hey, I'd enjoy having a beer with these guys or playing around a golf with these guys or whatever, but I'd really enjoy um, doing life with these guys right. because I feel like we're going to, we're going to both be pulling ourselves towards the best version of ourselves in, the, in a direction that's, you know, kind of life giving life building versus just, some random direction where we enjoy the chaotic journey. So let me ask you, because this happened, you know, when you were guiding, you know, so they're, they're clients, you know, and then they can have uh, strong opinions too. And you know, you don't want to offend your clients, but how did you handle that in your situations there at Exxon? Well, the, I mean, there was just a, a mantra that you just learn. And, and the great thing about Exxon, Knowles did this quite a bit. Um, but Knowles is an extremely technical oriented um, thing where you're learning Cutting edge skills. I mean, they're they're defining. I mean, like the Leave No Trace program. A lot of people have heard about the Forest Service promotes. That was actually a Knowles program that they gave to the Forest Service, and they use all the wilderness medicine, uh, wilderness first responder, first responder known as the Woofer course, and other. All those were Knowles uh, curriculums that they have given to the world. Basically, I mean, they really define sort of the technical excellence in, you know, mountaineering know-how and a lot of group dynamics. Their big thing was EB. Everything was about EB. Expedition behavior is what EB stands for. And it's basically just, you know, finding a way um, for the group to kind of meld and coexist and thrive. Um, Axum was much more of a mentor. It was Glenn Axum. His belief was that, you know, the only way to become a guide is to basically walk in the footsteps of a, of a, a mentor guide, a senior guide for years, not just like once, mm-hmm. not twice, but for years before you're kind of given the reins that, okay, now you're able to go and take a group safely in the mountains, at least under the Axum banner. Um, and one of the things is, one of the maxims is they hired a guide for a reason. <laughs> don't let, yeah. don't let the client guide you. And, uh, and you just have to sometimes put your foot down. And there's a point sometimes where you get, it's just like, okay, you know, we're not doing that. Right. Um, right. Or like, I'm like, not doing that. Or I'm taking the rest of the group. And right. usually in those situations, the guys find, usually go, okay, maybe I have kind of overstepped my, <laughs> my yeah, you, I'll kick my coverage here a little bit. You live, back down. You live longer <laughs> but, when you listen to the guide. But, yeah, well, because the, the maximum of all the things that I learned like from day one is uh, don't kill the clients. Yeah. <laughs> and number two, don't don't let the clients kill you. That's, that's and, a good Because uh, in, in the hundred and something years of action, for every one client that was has been hurt on a, you know, in the mountains, five guides have been hurt. 
because the guides are always out on what we call the sharp end of the rope. We're going to take them up without a belay, and then we, you know, pull everybody up. What's your safety? So if, if somebody's going to get hurt, it's the odds are yeah. it's going to be the guide. So don't let the guide kill you. And um, Okay. Anyway. Well, uh, you know, in the study guide in the back of the book, I reference scripture to frame small group discussions for each chapter. And for chapter 10, it's Hebrews 5, 5. And it says, uh, that is why Christ did not exalt himself to become high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So, Russell, how should we go about choosing the few good men we need to do life with? Well, again, I, I mean, I love that we look at the life of Jesus when we do that, because I really think, you know, he, I mean, who wouldn't, for all kinds of um and eternal reasons, we love to be a friend of Jesus. But I don't think there's any guy that's read the life of Jesus and the way they, you know, went about those, you know, three years of ministry of that wouldn't have gone, oh man, I would have loved to have done that. That would have been fine. You know, it would have been kind of rough and it'd been back, you know, this this guy would have been fine, right? I mean, everything from, you know, <laughs> calm the waters, make some food, I mean, all this stuff that, you know, you run into in the wilderness to go, man, he'd be a great, great wilderness buddy. Yeah. <laughs> but just the way the way he conducted himself and every and this is where I think when you're looking for somebody when you see someone that whatever interaction they have with whether that's someone that is, you know, kind of an authority, uh, a figure above them or a pecking order figure above them to, to some extent, or even more important, the ones that are below them and, and even with women and children, when, when they're done interacting with somebody, even if it's just, you know, walking down past each other on the sidewalk, does the person that they had an interaction with, are they gaining life from that ex- encounter and that experience, or, or is life being taken from them? And that comes down to this life giver, life taker. And all of us, any, if, if all of us, you just gave us a list and said, just write down the people that you've known in your life, even if some of them was from afar, that you just long to be with. I guarantee, for no other reason, there's nothing to be gained, no money to be made, no promotion to be made, no you know prettier girl to go out with. I mean, none of that stuff. It's it's just I just want to spend life with them. One thing I'll tell you, every one of those people I have in common is they're a life giver. Yeah, because that's, that's who we want to be around. We all have to spend time with life takers. It's just the reality of it. Um, and but it's not what we want. Um, and I think just continually getting back to that. Um, I think picking for all these great areas of your life, let's say marriage, um, you really want to look at a guy who has struggled to be successful in life and have a good balance with his wife, with his kids, and and he's you know nowhere nowhere near gotten it all right. None of us do, but he's always kind of had his eye on that prize, and he's been humble enough to admit when he's wrong and try to recalculate and even made some sacrifices to other parts of his life to put his family first. And you go, yeah, I want to, I want to be, I want to rub shoulders with that guy. But at the same time, you need to be looking for somebody that's not as far down the line as you are on that road that you can do the same thing for, because it's great to look at a guy who's making all these rookie mistakes. Right. Right. And, and then just kind of smile. If you got a heart, you know, for, for yourself and for others, you got to smile and go, Oh man, 
I can't believe how stupid I used to be because I was just like that. And you never say that, but you want to be with them and, and not in a way going, hey, man, you're messing up, but just go, hey, you know, why don't we go, let's go do this together. Why don't we get our families together and, you know, things like that. And you start being that life giver because I'll tell you, the life givers that you want to be around, they're going to look to be around life givers. Um, and it's it's just kind of the way it, it works. Yeah, I think that. You know, it's easiest to teach something when you've just learned it. And that's why, you know, that's being right. in that continuum is important because, you know, you're excited. You know, like you were talking uh, before we got on the show about your your older grandsons, you know, they want to teach, you know, the, your younger grandson. And, and speaking of sons, you know, uh, in, in the chapter, you know, I had mentioned that I had just become a father. And, and so how did it feel for you the very first time you became a father? Well, my daughter was born first, and it was so easy to be the father of a daughter. I, in my house, it was just me and my brother, so never had sisters. I had a couple of, you know, good buddies whose uh, sisters were kind of like my sisters. Um, you know, that was the close I had kind of growing up. I didn't know anything about girls, um, and, uh, and you know, still really don't. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, all, all I learned about girls, you know, for the most part, was kind of the, those conversations between two idiots talking about, like, a map or where we're going, you know, <laughs> high school guys in the locker room. <clears throat> this is how we get there. It's like, mm, no. <laughs> but, um, but, the, but having a daughter was so good, and it was so easy just to spoil her and be loved. And I really think it was the first time I ever experienced unconditional love. Right. You know, in, in my family, it was, it was, there, was, there was love, but it was very conditional, and you knew what the conditions were. It was performance-based, and, and that's not to knock on that to, to, my parents didn't love me. It was just all they knew. And my daughter was like, she just just loves me, you know, for no reason. All I got to do is just be in her presence, and she just loves me, and that was great. And then I remember when our, a couple of years later, our son was born. In fact, you know, my wife had had some problems with the first pregnancy. We had like four ultrasounds, and way back then, that wasn't even that common. Um, one up in the eighth month, and everyone was, it's, it's going to be a girl, it's going to be another girl, it's going to be another girl, so we were fine. You know, we had already had hand-me-downs ready and all that kind of stuff, and then we got this big surprise on birthday. My son came out. In fact, when I said it, it's a boy and this kind of stuttering shock kind of thing, my wife thought I was kidding because I could be a little bit of a jokester and, and she thought I was just, you know, pulling her leg. And so she was like, show him to me. <laughs> and, and so it came out, but I remember that almost immediately after that fell on me or that, that realization, it was like a bucket of ice water kind of been torn on, poured on and this fear. I was like, I have no idea to be able to be a good father to a son because that was my big struggle growing up was my relationship with my dad and it took years later I mean I was 35 my dad was 65 before we started this this amazing now but really tough journey back then of he and I getting right with each other yeah well and so all I could all I could think of was gosh I'm okay now I'm going to be on the other end of this relationship and I remember the turning point in my life my son was seven and I'd gotten mad at him about doing something some seven, a seven-year-old would do. And it was, you know, very inappropriately mad, like anger, like shaking, you know, kind of thing. No real violence, but I mean, the violence was in my heart, my eyes, and he knew it. And I saw this fear in this little seven-year-old boy 
and it was like I was looking into my eyes as a seven-year-old child with my dad doing the same to me. And I remember praying just one of my most heartfelt prayers ever to God of just saying, God, I realize, and this is, I truly believe this, that I realize it's a dad's job to tear out his son's heart. If there is any other way, would you show me? And he was so faithful to that request because I was in desperation. I just thought, okay, this is what a dad does. It changed my life. It changed my relationship with my son. It changed my relationship with my dad. It's changed my relationship with my great-grandsons, my relationship with my wife, my daughter. It was just, it, you know, there is a way. I just want to thank you for being on the program. I want to thank our, our sponsor, Prism Specialties. And uh, I just want to say uh, God bless you and thank you for being on. And uh, let's let's keep doing the right things and choosing those few good men and helping train up the others. So take care. You bet. Thank you. AM 1070, The Answer, Wrestling with the Inner Man. Thanks for listening to Wrestling with the Inner Man with David Savage. For more information, reach out to David at wrestlingwiththeinnerman at gmail.com. That's wrestlingwiththeinnerman at gmail.com. Tune in next time as Wrestling with the Inner Man tackles more tough topics to train up a generation of better men.